It's Brian Preston, the money guy. Restoring order to your financial chaos. Retirement, investing, taxes. You've got financial questions, he's got financial answers. It's Brian Preston, the money guy. But I owe you an apology. I, I have no idea what this is for, but I will certainly take it. What you got for me? Here's the problem. I sent you over the weekend a bunch of different articles on buying homes, mortgages. I know we did a show where I basically bullied you into why you should buy home because right. your wife was pregnant. But I didn't feel like we talked enough about the mortgage side of it. So I, I probably did send you six or seven articles on the myths about using mortgages as well as um, mistakes that people make when they go and they do financing, whether it's a refinance or a purchase. So I sent all that to you. And they were good. They weren't short art. They were good, pretty in-depth, a lot of meat in there, read through them, really. I enjoyed them. Well, but I had a, I had a, I had a kind of a – I was at a crossroads with – I noticed in the last two or three shows we'd gone through some checklists, whether it was the five things – you know, to be a 401k millionaire that Fidelity had done. Uh, we had the, the 20, the 20 mistakes that you see people make with IRAs. So I've been doing a lot of checklists that other people have prepared. And then I've just been kind of going through them and adding some color to it. Well, okay. I didn't want to do that. I figured, you know, before I got influenced by these other authors and these other bloggers and, and journalists, I said, let me sit down with pen and paper and write down the things that I have experienced. Cause you know, I've, I've I've built multiple homes. I've um, refinanced several times. I've also helped clients a number of times. So I feel like I have experience on dealing with the lending side of when you're buying or refinancing your house. So I said, let me get my notes down first, and then I'll come back. And that's exactly what I did. Okay. And after I went back through the articles, I was like, I'm just going to use what I got. So, so basically what you're telling me is, even though I read through the multitude of articles you sent over, I am completely ill-prepared for this episode. You're not ill-prepared. It's just you have background to now throw some stats and other things that maybe might be listed. Because I'm not going to give you, I don't think I'm going to give you many stats in this. I'm going to give you just what I've noticed in my experience. So it might actually make this piece better if you throw in some of that knowledge that you picked up from those pieces. Okay. okay. So... Since we've gone through what we're going to be talking about today, let me go ahead and give you an intro for the show. This is the Money Guy Show, going beyond common sense and restoring order to your financial chaos. Y'all haven't heard that one in a while, I have like you? That, that's, yeah. that's, what, that's going old school with it. But um, you can go check us out, money-guy.com. You can also write the show directly. I'm Brian, B-R-I-A-N at money-guy.com, or my co-host, Mr. Bo Hansen. B-O at money-guy.com. If you remember our credentials, what makes us able to do this show? I am a certified public accountant, a certified financial planner, and a personal financial specialist. Mr. Bo Hansen is a certified financial planner and a chartered financial analyst. So I got our, got our credentials in there. By day, remember, we're a fee-only financial planning firm with four locations. You can go to our website to check it out. But the big thing I like to tell people is that we ha- are gladly accepting new clients from the podcast. We're, we have clients in 26 states because we're going. We're quickly approaching our 10-year mark. So I want to thank you guys for 10 years of success. And um, let's jump in and help people do some mortgages now, Bo. Love it. Let's go. So here's the first thing I wrote down. And I am counting on Because you can see the notes are primarily up here, Bo, because this is a loose outline, if anything, if Man, you look these, at this list. When, when the uh, notes stay up top in your dome, that means this show is going to so, go so really, So I'm looking really for well. you to throw, throw some color in this thing. So here we go. Number one, I had 
know what you need before you get influenced. And what I meant by that is, is that there's a lot of people that have a lot of opinions about how much house you can afford. Mm-hmm. So it's the same thing. I give the, the general advice. Anytime you make major purchases, whether you're talking about cars, furniture, you know, big, big things, I always tell people, figure out, really take an inventory of what you need before you let somebody tell you what you need. Because there's a lot of people that might tell you you can you need more than you actually do just because maybe their check gets a little bit bigger. Um, so that's why I want to give some some kind of guidelines that we like to tell people, because it's not uncommon if you go talk to your realtor or your mortgage broker, they might suggest that you can easily afford 30% of 36% of your income for housing. And and yes, that's true. But that's where that adage of that you might be very house rich, life poor, if you make that type of decision. Our guidance is somewhere between that 25 to 28%. I think 25%, if you're just talking about the principal and interest, um, the, the taxes and the insurance, I think you can take into account the, you know, what the utilities and just the upkeep of the house and the maintenance, and that can push you up to 28%. But that's the guidelines I like to give when I'm trying to figure out Know what you need before you get influenced from, from anybody out there. And the reason the reason we even picked that 25 to 28% number is because we think that, yes, a, a house on your balance sheet shows up in the asset column. But we think of personal residences more as use assets than investment assets. So the reason we like you staying around that 25 to 28% is so that that additional, you know, Two thirty-six percent that you're saving, you get to really start building an empire and reaching that fine, that true financial independence point. That's exactly right. Save enough money so you're not just living for your house; that you also can build some financial independence. I think something that I wanted to draw to everybody's attention, in case I have some younger listeners who maybe are thinking about making that step because the economy's improved, think about getting that first house. Please understand the difference between pre-qualification and pre-approval. Mm-hmm. Pre-qualification you can quickly get from about a fifteen-minute phone call with a mortgage lender where you just tell them a little bit about your income, what debts you have, and they can say, oh, I think you've, you're basically pre-qualified for this much. But that is a far cry from being pre-approved. And, and you really, if you're going to buy your first house and you want to be taken serious out there in the marketplace, you might want to go ahead and get pre-approval from a, from a lender, which means that you're actually going to submit some, some documents that will verify the numbers, and then once you get a letter from the institution saying you've been approved, then you know you you, you know you're going to get underwritten. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's also important when you do, and I didn't even put this in my notes, but I think it's an important thing that I've noticed when I do contracts. Even though I know that I'm a banker's dream with good credit, not much debt, and assets, I still write a, a little contingent in there, the contingency in, into the contracts that says this entire deal is based upon me becoming approved for financing sure. for this home. And I've yet to have anybody say, no, that's, we're not going to let you do that. I just do that just to be safe because you just never know. I don't want to lose the earnest money and all the other stuff. So I, I usually put that contingency when I'm buying property into it. In my offer, I even went more specific because I had talked about some unique uh, things I was going to do with my mortgage lender. And I even read that in the contract, contingent upon obtaining financing and receiving this benefit, this benefit, this benefit, just to make sure I was locked down. Same, same exact thing. Yeah, I mean, and we're probably doing this a little out of order, but remember, when you do a real estate contract, 
There's a reason they have an exhibit that attaches to the back of it. You can add anything you want. I mean, everybody knows about contingencies where you're basically saying, I have to sell my house before I'm locked in to buy this house. You know, that's the type of contingency you can do. But there's many, many other things that you can write into the contract. And, you know, it's always up to, does the other person accept it? I mean, that's how negotiations work is that you can ask for anything, but it's just you got to get somebody else to approve it. But you never know unless you at least ask. Sure. So, so that's the guidance I would give you. The next thing I always put in here was I put vision plan the future. And what I mean by that, you know, I've talked about vision planning when I closed out 2014's podcast. I talked about just thinking about the future. Well, you have to do that when you're making a big purchase like a house or even refinancing your existing home. You've got to look into the future and go, am I going to be here for three years, five years? seven years? What what does the future look like for me and my family? Because that's going to help you decide, uh, you know, is this the type of home that I'm going to live in for just a short period of time? Because this is, you know, the the home me and my wife wanted to start while we were waiting before we had kids. And now once we have one child, two children, oh my goodness, we've outgrown this house. So we're going to be moving in five to seven years. Or is this a 10-year home? Or is this the home where you're hoping, you know, when people say, when are you moving next? Be like, I'm not moving. That's where my headstone's going to go, right there. <laughs> I mean, that's the type of planning and vision planning you need to do because that's going to help you decide, do you need a 30-year mortgage? Do you need a five-year mortgage, a seven-year, or is it a 15-year? You know, And I also think you have to vision plan in the fact, because I'm going to talk about in a minute, where we are historically with interest rates. But, you know, and, and I'm not in su- – I know personally, since I'm many, many years from retiring, I'm not in a hurry – to get out of debt on my mortgage. I'm in a hurry to get out of any other debt, but my mortgage, because the rates are so low, I'm not in a super big hurry. Sure. But if I was 50 to 55 years old, a 15-year mortgage is definitely going to be look like something I'm intrigued with more so than I am in my early 40s because I want you to be completely debt-free when you retire. Right. Meaning if your retirement date is 65 and you're 50 years old, you probably do want to shoot for a 15-year mortgage. Because you don't want to, you don't, you want to come into that that threshold of hitting financial independence where you truly don't owe anybody anything. And I think it's important to note that exactly what you said is sort of a product of our current interest rate environment. So, as a sort of disclaimer, you know, we have uh, podcast listeners that go back and listen to archives. If we are in the future and it's year twenty twenty now, and you're listening to this show. As we're talking about this, mortgage rates are in the threes, four percent. I mean, really low historical norms. As they start to increase five, six, seven percent, like it was not many, many years ago, then yeah, maybe a fifteen-year does start to become more attractive than it is present day. Yeah, and, I, and to prove your point, I'm going to give you the mortgages of some of my homes. My first house I did back in the mid '90s. Um, I got six and three quarters, and I was overjoyed. I thought it was the greatest rate ever to get six and three quarters on a 30-year mortgage. What'd your What'd your parents think about that mortgage? They thought it was pretty good. I mean, because you think about, I mean, my parents bought their house in the late 70s. So, I mean, if you go back and look at historical rates back in the 70s and 80s, early part of the 80s, it wasn't uncommon to hit double digits. I mean, so you hear six and three quarters, you're like, whoo. My boy's doing all right. (laughs) You know, and and then what's funny is, you know, you don't see the creative financing as much now as you did back then. Um, I didn't have a full 20% to put down on my first house, so I did what was called a piggyback loan. I had a 15% mortgage, a second mortgage, and then I had an 80% conventional mortgage, and I put down 5%. So my conventional 80% mortgage was a six and three quarters. The 
home equity, or it was actually just a loan, but I turned it into a home equity loan later. But um, when I when I closed on the house, that piggyback, the second mortgage, was at two percent premium over the other mortgage, so it was eight point seven five percent. That just sounds crazy right now. Nine percent. I mean, you, I was paying nine percent of my money. Who who wouldn't want to make nine percent on their money? So guaranteed, as long as I was you know kept my credit up and paid everything. But so then my second mortgage, fast forward. I closed on my second house and that mortgage was, I think it was, it was above five. And I refinanced from, I think, five to mid fives to, and I was really excited about this next rate. I got a 15 year mortgage at four and seven eights and I was tickled. Oh yeah. That was a great rate. I thought, holy cow, four and seven eights. I mean, I just dropped the 30 year, you know, from my previous house by almost 2%. So that was an incredible thing. And then fast forward, I've done some other properties, but I just secured on a on a new loan I was doing. It's a decent chunk. It's a jumbo amount of money, meaning it's it's greater than four seventeen, and I got it for three and a half. That's just sort of remarkable. I mean, I can't believe they give away money at three and a half percent these days. I mean, that's almost disgusting. You're like, really, three and a half? I mean, it, it makes you think, and that's why you know I have essentially divorced. My 15-year mortgage right now, and because I love the 15-year mortgage, if you think about, you know, just how great it is that you pay, you know, maybe 20, 35 percent more a month, but you can take off half of how long you can cut it in half, how long you have to pay for your mortgage. That's a great, great mm-hmm. deal, historically. And and there's nothing to say, Brian. Say you're you're someone who's 45 years old, and you just know, you know, you know, you want to retire at 60, and you want to be completely debt-free at 60. You can still take out a 30-year loan and pay it off on a 15-year schedule. There's nothing stopping you from doing that, if you so chose. Yeah, where where I think the 15-year runs into a little trouble is if life throws you some curveballs. You know, maybe you have to end up because you have to relocate for work and you end up having two jo- two houses. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're going you're gonna to be like, man, I wish it was on a 30-year amortization versus a 15-year amortization. Or if maybe you're a salesperson who gets commission checks at specific times of the year, so you're like rich at certain times of the year and then there's months that you're like, oh my God, am I gonna have to eat peanut butter and jelly this week? <laughs> I mean those are those are the type of things your cash flow might come in this ebb and flow manner that you want some additional flexibility. And that's exactly right. We're so low with interest rates right now. It's about a half a percent difference between 30 year and 15 year rates that you might just say, you know what, we're so low historically Flexibility that I want it. the flexibility. I'll pay a half a percent for the additional flexibility. So that's a great point to, to kind of talking about why you need a vision plan to know where you are so you can figure out if it's worth the premium, that half a percent premium, like over a 15-year mortgage, to do the 30-year. So that, and that's... As part of that vision plan, Brian, you know, we, we see this with a lot of our clients who've experienced some success, but... They are just tightwads by nature. They part of the tightwad nation don't like to uh, don't like to spend any more than they absolutely have to. And sometimes we even have to coach them on, okay, you you can afford to do some of the things that you've always wanted to do, and maybe it makes sense to do that because a lot of your house is lifestyle stuff. I know that uh, in my current house there are light switches in certain places that I'm just so glad I have a light switch there. Uh, and I would have been upset if it wasn't there, you know. So it's okay to spend a little bit more for that kind of stuff, right? Quality of life. I think it's the whole thing of quality of life because you you said it actually pre this point, Bo, and the fact that we do look at it as a balance sheet asset, but so much of your house is personal and who you are and quality of life decision. It's not necessarily 
all financial. Mm-hmm. I mean, in one of those articles that I told you I wasn't going to use, I did notice it referenced that the average house, if you broke it down, you're probably looking at only a percent or two of growth. Now, realize I know that that percent or two can be more impa- impactful because it's leveraged, because mm-hmm. you know, you're know you borrowing 80% of the money. So if it goes up 1% or 2% versus what you put in, that's pretty good. But still... I look at it, I wouldn't, I never really consider when I'm trying to look at my personal financial statements, I look at my house as a must. It's just something that I I count as a given for life. And I don't include that in any of my retirement projections or anything else because I'm I'm going to have a house. I mean, I just, I do. And you hope that down the road, it's just gravy. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just extra money that comes in, but I don't count it when I'm doing financial projections. Um, Transition to the next point. I wrote this because this is an important one that you might not realize it because who thinks about their credit until you actually need to use your credit? So I just made the next point was be an advocate for your credit score. Um, I had a conversation with a client over the weekend. I know he'll listen to this show where we were talking about credit karma, how great it is to use apps like Credit Karma where you can um, be very proactive at knowing what's going on with your your credit score. And don't just assume everything is good. I mean, you can have really good credit and still have mistakes with your credit score. I'll give you a personal example. This is actually me. I had a refinance not too far back where I refinanced one of my, my pieces of real estate. And um, I noticed on my credit score that, you know, now I had two loans, meaning that I refinanced with the exact same mortgage company. And now it just looks like I added $150,000 of debt. Instead of refinancing $150,000 of debt, it looks like I just added another $150,000. So now instead of having $150,000 of debt on that piece of property, it looks like I have $300,000 of debt. And, you know, that annoys you. And, and, you know, but it didn't hurt my credit score. You know, what was funny to me is that you would think adding that much debt to your, to your thing would totally deep six my credit score. It didn't. It, but so, but it's one of those things where you still got to get it in hand. And you'd be surprised. Um, I went to the website. It was, it was Nation Star. I don't mind sharing, you know, cause I, I'm, I'm actually using factual base. I went to Nation Star and they actually have a section on their website. Whereas if you're having problems with what we're reporting to the credit agencies, let us know. So they're, they did the research and we're getting that fixed. So, I mean, that's the type of stuff you have to be an advocate and, and be very proactive with your credit score because it's not just for financing. Your credit score is now used for your property and casualty insurance. There's so many different things that if you're not keeping a good credit score and how the financial powers that be out there look at you, it, it hurts you financially. So how much do services like Credit Karma, how much do they cost and what exactly do they do? How do you use it? Credit Karma is free. Holy cow. So you, it's just an app. Or I think it, it doesn't have to be an app, app. You can probably just go on their website and check it out if you want to go Google that. But... um. I, I have the app on my phone. I know they have also for Androids. You know, I do, I used Apple products, but um, and I'm I'm a junkie as I, as I shared with the the client this weekend. As I go every Thursday morning and open Credit Karma to see is that, Gabe? Is that the same date it does for you? Is everybody Thursday? It's once a week. Is it different for different people? Like, is yours Thursday? Okay, so it is different for if different I people. Check it on Thursday, then the next update would be on Thursday. No, mine updates every Thursday morning. So I guess it is different for different people. I don't know how they break it up, but I am a junkie now. And every Thursday morning, I go in there to see what's changed. You know, if I paid, you know, you'll have a credit card that builds up, and then you pay it off because I like paying. It's fun watching that credit, you know, the the debt outstanding debt drop. I mean, in a nerdy you just way, said fun. 
Well, it is. You kind just of fun. said fun. That's awesome. <laughs> it is kind of fun. What a, what a financial mental mutant. <laughs> so that, that's a fun thing. Now, I do want to tell you. Now, I probably should verify this before I said it, but I have heard if you do a credit freeze, because you know with so much bad stuff that's going on with these hackings and everything else, a lot of people are freezing their credit. I have been told that if you freeze your credit, it it, it kind of makes it work. Apps like Credit Karma right. really can't work anymore because it doesn't allow anybody to have access unless you unfreeze your credit. So that's just one thing to kind of be aware of if you are using services like Credit Karma. Um, the next thing I had on here was down payment. Okay. As I told you, and Bo, you can, if you, if you care to, you can share your personal sure. experience too. I did not have 20% on my first home. You know, like I told you, I, I, I had 5% on my first house. Um, Bo, you know, it's not uncommon people to get in 3%. Absolutely. Especially if you've made good financial decisions and have credit. And um, and then, you know, you hope to eventually get to where you are putting that traditional 20% down because once you get to 20%, you don't have to do complicated things like these piggyback mm-hmm. loans and to avoid the PMI. Because that's the big thing is you're trying to avoid PMI. Fortunately now, not that PMI is a good thing, it's at least deductible now. When I right. first bought my my first house... PMI was completely not deductible. So that's why I was, I'll be darned if I'm going to pay that. So that's why we did that crazy piggyback loan is because I was not going to pay PMI. It just did not make sense to me. And just like with most things, if you are educated and you kind of do your due diligence, it's amazing kind of some of the things you can work out. So both, uh, Brian, us personally, as well as with clients we've worked in the past, 20% is obviously the number to kind of work to if you're going to put that down in a house. If for some reason you don't have the liquidity where you can do 20%, there are ways to get you know 95% or just like you said, even 97% loans. And there are even ways to do that and get rid of the PMI, whether you pay for it up front out of pocket or you have the lender pay for it and take a premium on the rate. There are some things that you can do. You just need to make sure you talk to your mortgage broker, find out what's available, and also talk to two or three mortgage brokers. I know when I was shopping my loan, I talked to three different individuals all three of them had different products with different incentives, and they were all three pretty good. I just had to pick the one uh, that was the best for me. Now, Brian, we've talked about this a ton, and this is more of a uh, spreadsheet sort of analytical dollars and cents things, but we have always mentioned to clients, even if you have um, you have some resources where you can put a, put a large down payment on a house, we've said that if you go from, it doesn't always make sense, if you can't do 20, to do more than maybe five or 10% because, and obviously if you look at the PMI calculation, that money staying liquid in an emergency reserves, high yield savings account might be more valuable to you than being locked up in the house. Um, just because it gives you the ability later on, if you still wanted to just take that chunk of money and still throw it on the mortgage, you always have that ability. But once it goes into the house, you aren't guaranteed that you can get it out until you sell or refinance and 2008, kind of taught us that equity in a home isn't always equity in a home. Yeah, I mean, that's that's one of the things. You definitely want to make sure, as we mentioned on a previous point, you don't want to be house rich and life poor to where you can get derailed just because maybe you lose a job, somebody get, you know gets ill in your household. You've got to keep some type of cash reserves. Um, <laughs> but you totally... I mean, look at my list, and here's the last one. Don't forget to plan for contingencies, cash <laughs> reserves. I mean, that's exactly made my point. Um, it's just now, instead of closing the show with don't forget to plan for contingencies, we'll go ahead and throw it in there. But I my do bad. think it's a very valid point. No, I think that's good. I mean, I, I really do. 
because you don't want to, and, and you do hope that you eventually get to the point where you have the resources where you can do the traditional 20%, but I think Bo is right. There's nothing wrong with getting creative by maybe taking a premium on the interest rate to avoid PMI, where you pay a little bit greater, but still keep some cash reserves, because you just don't want to, it's hard to get that money out of an illiquid asset like real estate. I mean, if you hit an emergency. And you notice our advice never was buy as large of a house as you possibly can, only putting down 3% and take the difference and go no buy way. a luxury car. That's you why know, that's, we went back to step one, where we talked about the percentage of your income. Another little planning tip that nobody ever tells. Matter of fact, I could, Bo, this is one that you and I talked about that you were kind of shocked if you planned it and structured your contract correctly. They Things that you can do to your house that you can't take with you. I mean, let's face it. If you go put um, plantation plantation shutters. shutters or blinds in your house, you're not taking them with you if you sell the house. <laughs> They're going to stay in the house. So I always tell people, if, you, if you're buying a house, a, a new construction house, right. and it's, it's going to be bare bones. It's not going to have anything on it. But yet you've got to have that stuff in there because you don't want to be taking a shower and everybody watch, you know. Somebody roofing a, the house next door to yours is looking in at you taking a shower. You got to have blinds or shutters. Sure. So, especially if you look like me. So anyway, <laughs> you got to you know. So it's one of those things where I tell people that can be part of your down payment. You can be paying for that blinds or shutters. The thing is, you have to structure it correctly. You have to work with the you know your it has to be in your contract, and then you have to pay the builder or pay the person the person you're purchasing from. And then they pay within. So there is some hoop steps you have to jump through. But I like counting that type of stuff because here's the other thing. When you go to resell, what does everybody do now when you you go to sell your house? They go on Zillow to see what you paid for your house. So if you put a bunch of stuff in your house and it wasn't in the purchase... How do you get credit? Now there's a, there is a, a, it cuts both ways because the, the higher you drive up your purchase price, the higher your taxes are probably mm-hmm. going to be on the house. So there is a cost there, but it's one of those things that it's a balancing act of if, you, if you're tight on money and you know you're having to put things in, invest into the house to do certain things, I think I'd rather you get credit for something since you're so tight instead of getting into those cash reserves and other money. This is not something that you're guaranteed to be able to do. It very much depends on the builder. The builder or whoever's selling the home must be willing to allow you to do that, uh, as some of us may have found out the hard way. <laughs> maybe you don't sweet talk as well as I do. Maybe, maybe that's what it is. That's what, you know, it's the whole When honey, I think about the two the of honey. us, that's what I think it's it is. It's the honey that it's I'm giving out. That's why, how could you say no? That's got to be it. So here's the next thing. Who do you work with? You know, is this one of those things, where, and I hate to keep talking about new versus old and tr- or traditional, but I do have this broken into traditional, which is, you know, a lot of times when you're trying to figure out if you're going to finance property, who do you work with? The first thing a lot of people think about is I'll go down to my credit union, or I'll go down to my bank. And, and I think especially your credit union is a great option. They're very competitive, usually have great um, products that they're offering. We love all the credit unions that we work with. But a lot there's also sometimes some economic incentives if you use the financing provided by the person selling you the house, maybe you're doing new construction and you have a builder that's offering you some financing. The only thing I would caution you with is make sure you're getting the best deal. Mm-hmm. Even though they might give you $2,500 or $5,000 if you use their preferential lender, if their rate is substantially higher than the market, you didn't really get anything um, because they probably made so much money on the mortgage financing that it all kind of came out in the wash. So I would tell you, 
You definitely can go the traditional route. That's what I call the, the easier route because that's the path of least resistance, just going with who you already have relationships with or who the purchaser, I mean, or the company that is selling you the house has a relationship with. They have every incentive to try to get the deal done, so that probably is going to be the easiest path. But this is the tightwad nation, <laughs> and I don't like to pay full price for anything, so I'm always <laughs> trying to come up for an angle to get you a little bit extra. Well, guess what? helps you get an angle to get a little bit extra on your financing. The internet. Mm -hmm. The internet is a powerful, powerful thing. But I got to caution you. If you go out there and you go on bankrate.com and just, or I even notice Zillow has a great financing option now where you can go without giving any personal information. You can go see where rates are and then find lenders that will give you those rates. A lot of what I would consider... I don't want to say fly by night, but companies that have horrible ratings, right. if you go do any type of research on them, I'm not going to give any names because I don't feel like that's appropriate uh, on these bad companies, but there are some companies I've never heard of that offer unbelievable rates. They, sometimes the deals seem just a little too good to be true. And the, the deal can be too good. And usually what I have found a lot of them are doing, and this kind of bleeds into my next point is, look at their locks. You know, it's going to take a while to get through underwriting when you do financing because this is a big, big purchase. So usually, you you know, the person that's going to give you this much money wants to make sure they feel like that they have the risk of the situation under control. But so if you see a, a, a loan that only has a 30-day lock on it, well, of course, they can offer a lower rate because not much is going to change with interest rates over that 30-day period. So they can offer a much lower rate. The problem is you're probably not going to make it through underwriting in 30 days. It's just too hard. I mean, because there's just too many things that can go wrong in a real estate transaction for a 30-day lock to make sense. So make sure you understand all the fine print. Here's what I would do if you really want to know if you go use the Internet as your friend. Only work with companies that have been around and that you mm -hmm. recognize them are kind of household names. Um, I, I'll give you, I mean, I can imagine I've had neighbors tell me they've used Quicken. Yep. I mean, Quicken seems like they, they must do something right because there's a lot of people I've actually known that have used them. That's a way to harness the internet. I'll tell you personally, a sleeper that I was unaware did home loans that has been awesome. It's Capital One. You know, when I think of Capital One, I think about gladiators um, banging over credit card debt, you know, or Alec Baldwin or, some, you know, whoever they're working with, um, you know, is their, their celebrity at the moment. Capital One is a credit card company. You either, you know, what do you, when you think of Capital One, I think of credit cards, I think of auto loans. I don't think about Home loans. getting a, a mortgage. But here's, the, here's what people don't realize. The market for mortgages is such a unique little thing because realize these big financial institutions are building a portfolio. No different than me and you building a portfolio, you know, different asset classes, different time horizons and so forth. Co financial companies will do the exact same thing. So they might have a lot. They, obviously, Capital One has a lot of credit cards. They have a lot of auto loans. Well, they also want home loans to fill up their portfolio. And sometimes, you know, it, it, it matters whether it's a conforming loan or if it's a jumbo loan. You'll sometimes see, and that's why sometimes you'll hear people talk about jumbo loans are significantly more expensive than conventional mortgage. Not necessarily because there's financial institutions that are looking for jumbo products to put right. in their portfolio. So they'll even have better rates on jumbo than they do conventional mortgages. Mm -hmm. So that's why I've been really impressed. I used Capital One recently um, I'll give a shout out to Chris and then Mike. Mike was on Team 5. He helped me with all the underwriting side. Really good. But this is what the advice I would give you. 
you need to figure out very quickly how complicated you are. If you're self-employed, if you own some businesses, it might be harder to go through some of these internet-based or institutions that know you from no one else. They don't, right. they don't know you. So they're going to, their, their underwriting process is going to be a little harder because they have to, you know, they have to make sure this stranger is good. Whereas if you go the traditional route with, you know, somebody you already have assets with or, you know, somebody that the seller has, you know, got an incentive with, they're going to, they're going to try to push your deal through a little bit harder, I think, than these internet-based companies will. The other thing you have to ask yourself is how motivated are you? If you're a doer, then the internet's for you. Because, I mean, it's just like they've had a Capital One asked me for a document. Boom, I'm on them. I mean, I, I am on this because I want a deal. I want to make this thing happen so that I can feel good that I'm paying a quarter of a percent cheaper than everybody else who's buying at that same price mm-hmm. point. So I'm a motivated person, even though I might be a little more complicated because I own businesses and, you know, and I have income from multiple sources. I still did it. Because I feel like I'm motivated enough that I was go able to to carry it through the process. I didn't need anybody to hold my hand through the process, so I'm a perfect internet-based consumer. If you're not that type of person, you might want to go more traditional. Sure. So the next thing I had on here was lock. I've already kind of hit on this a little bit. I think for a refinance, at a minimum, you got to have 45 days. If you're doing a purchase, whether it's a build or just buying an existing home, I'd want at least 60 days. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've told you guys, I just did a deal. I got a 60-day lock. It took me all 30 days to get through the underwriting process. So now we just have a few weeks to figure out. Because remember, you don't close exactly 60 days out. You know, there might be, you know, you have different days, different things, because you're working with multiple parties. The closing date, you know, there's always a little give or take on that the closing might be rescheduled two or three times. So that's why you want to have enough time to work with everybody's schedule to make sure you don't get compressed on your time. That's usually you can get 45 or 60 without paying a premium too, by the way. Right. The next thing I had, well, I've already kind of talked about this. I had type of mortgage, which is talking about whether you want to do a five, a seven. You know, if you were doing an arm type product, you can do those. Can we talk about adjustable rates real quick? When might, you know, adjustable rate mortgages, and I think one of the articles already even talked about this, is they get really, really bad um, really bad press. And then even with interest rates as low as they are, people are like, oh, you're crazy to do an adjustable rate mortgage. But they do have their place. When are some times that an adjustable rate mortgage might make sense and who might they make sense for? I have a bunch of friends and neighbors who work for a national corporation that it is known. I, I kind of pick on them and tell them they're like Methodist pastors were back when I was growing up, is that when you work at some of these corporations, you just know you'll get relocated every five to seven years. I mean, they just, they move you. I mean, that's, that's, that's the way you get promoted through the system when you work for this big, you know, S&P 500 type company is that they're going to move you either overseas or to another state where they have a plant or something like that. So, um, if you know that your job is going to move you in five years, you could lock in a seven year arm and not feel too bad about it. Because I always just tell people, be conservative with your choices. But if, like I said, if you know you're going to get moved in five and you did a seven, you're giving yourself a two-year buffer just in case you had a downturn in the economy and maybe they freezed relocation packages for a few years, you'd be okay. I just don't want anybody to get caught. And, I mean, it doesn't mean that you couldn't even do a 10-year. I mean, you see 10-year arms, too. I mean, it's crazy what they offer these days um, now that 
credit is coming back into the marketplace. So you can get loans again. And you're seeing that out there by all the new construction that's starting to happen here and, you know, throughout the United States. So that, that's the big part of it is just know what your, it's part of that vision planning, going back to a few steps earlier, looking at what your needs are. Now, me, this is where I think the CPA in me comes out. There's a reason CPAs get great insurance rates is that we're not exactly the biggest risk takers. <laughs> I mean, because how many CPAs you know that are doing skydiving for on the weekend? Not many. I if, mean, if you're a CPA out there who likes to skydive, will you just shoot us an email saying, hey, I'm one of those guys? Well, they don't hang out with me. All my CPA buddies, we're all kind of, you know, we enjoy eating and doing lame stuff. I mean, looking at spreadsheets and hanging out with our 10-key calculator. I mean, it's not like we're doing I, – if you think I'm fun now, you should have seen me before I was a CPA. That's what I tell people. This thing has broken me of, my, of how much fun I used to be. But um, getting back to the point, if you know where you are with how much risk and so forth, that's what I, I still – I like the 15-year and 30-year products. I just do. I mean, but I'm even more in love with the 30-year products right now just because the rates are ridiculous. 3.5%? Really? I mean, I, I couldn't believe that they're giving me money at 3.5% for 30 years. Who are the, who are the, this has to be international money. <laughs> Nobody in America would rightly do that. I mean, because there's just too much of a spread for with what you historically have been able to make with that money. So that's what it, it just, it, which really troubles me because I've always been such a good prepayer. Uh, in the past, it's been prepayer of negative debt or <laughs> negative equity because, you know, I've always done 15 year and fast paying mortgages. Now I'm like, should I do that again? I mean, cause three and a half percent. I mean, I could go. Continue to build this empire with investments. So that's my own internal dialogue, but we'll, we'll keep going here. Um, another question that comes up all the time is points. Points, should you do points? I think points on a refinance don't make any sense because remember when you do a points on a refinance, you have to amortize those points over the length of the loan. So right. you do a 30 year mortgage and you bought points. You have to refinance. You have to do the amortization over that length of time or the next time you refinance. So it just it doesn't give a compelling tax reason to do points. Um, I think when you're doing a, a purchase where points become deductible in the year, you can consider it. You need to do a break-even analysis. Mm-hmm. What I mean by that is, is you need to figure out if you buy a point. And do y'all know what a point is? Just give you a, give you an explanation. A point means you're buying down the mortgage, meaning the lender saying, okay, if you give us some money. We'll buy down the mortgage a little bit. Give you a little bit better rate. Yeah, we'll we'll drop the the interest rate an eighth of a point or a quarter of a point, you know. So that, that's you can figure out if it makes sense. What what I what I saw was is I think a mortgage I recently did was for an eighth. I was able to buy it down. Well, I paid an eighth to get to the three and three and a half. I should say. Okay. So it was not a free three and a half. I sure. had to pay an eighth of a point, which if you think about it, is point one two five percent. Which is cheap, right? I mean, it, it didn't cost much to save a big chunk of money each month. Well, not a hu- huge chunk, but it was it was significant enough that it it made sense. Because <clears throat> what you want to do is figure out what you'll save monthly on the mortgage by getting the lower interest rate, and then you divide that through what you actually paid. And so basically, you, you're saying how long it takes you yeah. to save it on a monthly basis to pay off what you paid for. And if you, if, for instance, if the break even comes in at two and a half, three years, and you know you're going to live in this house for at least seven years, do it. I mean, interest rates aren't going to be cheaper, guys. I mean, I just don't see how historically they could be cheaper. So it might make sense to buy that point 
And, and Bo, you talked about points can also be used for negotiation purposes. Absolutely. You might have to take a premium on the rate so you can avoid PMI. Or maybe you negotiated where that you got the closing costs, you got paid extra money. They're not going to refund you closing costs, but you can apply them towards points or other things. So yep. there's all kind of creative things you can do. Title insurance. Man, we practically should do a podcast on title insurance because I think nobody takes – remember, all mortgages, mortgage providers require you to do title insurance for them. But how how many of us actually take the mortgage insurance for ourselves to protect us? I'd say it's a very low number. I probably could have Googled that and given a, a, a very clear, crystal clear number of what the percentage is. But I want to tell people – and now maybe this varies by state – so I have to be careful and throw out a disclaimer. But the states that I bought real estate, usually it's not ex- really two separate policies. You don't have to pay. So if mortgage insurance costs $2,000, you don't have to buy two $2,000 policies. That's just not appropriate. A lot of times you can buy, you know, a rider policy, meaning for like an extra 150 bucks, 175 bucks, they add that to the $2,000 cost. So it's really only costing you $175 to have insurance for yourself. I think you should do it. Now, the only thing that kind of gouges you a little bit and you get upset about it is if you refinance, they make you do it again. It's the biggest scam in that aspect is that if you refinance, you have to go through the whole title insurance fiasco again. But because I think interest rates are so low right now that we're we're probably dragging the bottom of historic rates right now that in five, seven years we'll look back and go, are they really giving money out that cheap? I definitely think title insurance is your friend. So to definitely consider doing that, especially if you can just do a rider policy that's 150, 175 bucks on top of the title insurance they're doing for your mortgage lender. Um, well, Bo, that was the last thing I had because then the last thing was that incredible point was don't forget to plan for contingencies. Oh, I like that one. Got to have cash reserves. So it all goes back to that fundamental thing about when you're shopping for a major purchase like this, which is such a life-changing purchase, is you do not want to be house-rich, life-poor, and then one step from being essentially on the streets, literally, meaning if you can't cover you know, emergencies that might come up. I always talk about the hot water heater breaking or you know, the car breaking down or some illness that occurs to you where you're disabled or job change, you need to have some cash reserves. You just do not want to be derailed because a good life event like buying a house caused you to to make the wrong step. Bo, anything else? Because you're kind of an expert on this now, too, because you've bought two homes. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've done this a couple times now. and, uh, And I think so long as you, again, educate yourself before you get into it, don't just rely on one person you're talking to because, unfortunately, we live in a world where people act in their own self-interest more often than not. So recognize your real estate agent might be a touch biased. Your mortgage broker might be a touch biased. Not all of them, but some of them. So it's never a bad idea to get uh, some insight or guidance from an unbiased third party. And you kind of work through it that way. Figure out what makes the most sense for you uh, and stay inside or well below your means. And you'll set yourself up for success when you're dealing with home loans. What I heard from that was shop it. Yep. You know, go out there and shop the rates because I think mortgages are a commodity. So it's not like one product's going to act differently than another product. 
So definitely realize that if you shop it, you're probably going to be in a better place. At least you'll sleep better knowing you got the better deal. Because, Bo, you said it earlier, is that different lenders were able to offer you different things because they all have different capital providers. So go out there and shop it and make sure you're getting the best deal. That's what the that's what a tightwad nation member would do. But guys, hopefully you got something out of this. You know, I know there's a lot of other experts out there listening. And if you have any insight, write us. You can write me at Brian at money-guy.com. You can write my co-host, Mr. Bo Hansen, at Bo at money-guy.com. And remember, in addition to going beyond common sense, we're always looking for podcast listeners that want to take that next step. If you want to see if we're, you're a good fit for us to be a client, reach out to us. Go through those email addresses I just shared with you guys. We'd love to hear from you because we're so blessed that we have clients now in 26 states. I cannot believe that we've been doing this for almost 10 years. Y'all turn this hobby into really something that's changed my life. And I'm just glad that I get to talk to you guys every two weeks. I'm your host, Brian Preston. I'll talk to you soon. The Money Guy podcast is hosted by Brian Preston. And Brian Preston is a partner with Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management. Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management is a registered investment advisory firm regulated by the Securities and Exchange Commission in accordance and compliance with securities laws and regulations. Preston and Cleveland Wealth Management does not render or offer to render personalized investment or tax advice through the Money Guy podcast. The information provided is for informational purposes only and does not constitute financial, tax, investment, or legal advice. <laughs>